Let's read it together. Genesis chapter 3, beginning at verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And then we skip down to verse 21 and read one more verse. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Now, Lord, thank you for your presence we've sensed as we've worshipped you. Thank you for giving attention to our prayers that we have prayed. And now I ask that you will open our hearts that we may hear what the Spirit will say to us in the midst of the preaching. I pray that you would give me clarity of thought and speech so that I may I may proclaim your truth in a manner that is understandable, that is in keeping with what the Spirit would want us to know today. I lift up other life-giving churches and pray blessing upon them. And I pray for our loved ones not yet walking in right relationship with you. I pray that you will draw them, O Lord, to a place of repentance. And I, I especially pray for sons and daughters who have wandered from the faith I pray, O Lord, that you'll send the Holy Spirit after them, that not one of them will be lost. I pray all of these things in the only name that matters, that precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. I don't suppose there can be any more idyllic setting than the one in which the story that forms our text for today takes place. It was a true paradise designed and created by God. Now, the Bible doesn't say just exactly how long Adam and Eve enjoyed their time in this beautiful, perfect environment. But in verse 1 of chapter 3, you are suddenly introduced to a problem that occurs in a place and a manner that is the last you would expect. And and isn't that the way trouble usually comes? It usually comes in places you're not expecting, and it usually comes in forms you're not suspecting. Well, into this perfect paradise, trouble is introduced in verse 1 of chapter 3 by the words, now the serpent. I want you to understand, this isn't some hideous, repulsive reptile this, is, this isn't some magical wonder, you know, a talking snake. You'll remember that his original name was Lucifer. He's not a repulsive monster. If he were, you would easily recognize him as something unpleasant and evil, and you would run away from him. The word literally means shining one. Lucifer is the light bearer. But when Lucifer rebelled against God and was banished from his presence, Lucifer, the son of the morning, became Satan, the father of the night. And when you see him in the Bible, you find that he is a master of deception. 
So he appears in forms you wouldn't suspect, and he appears in places you wouldn't expect. Now, as we walk through this story, I want you to see that the pattern he employed in the beginning to bring trouble and heartache to the very first couple is the exact same pattern that he uses today. He hasn't changed his methodology, probably because it's still effective. He begins with dialogue. Notice in verse 1 when it says, the serpent said to the woman. And then in verse 2, the woman said to the serpent. Now, at first blush, this seems so innocent. I mean, they're having a conversation. They're just talking. What's the harm in talking? After all, I don't want to be thought of as intolerant or rude. I don't want to be judgmental. I want to be open-minded. But the problem with that kind of dialogue is that it quickly leads to doubt. In verse 1, the serpent poses this question. Has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Notice, he doesn't contradict God. He just puts a question mark after the word of God. And let me just pause right here long enough to tell you that this is one of the greatest issues in our world today. This is the same question you will hear from the skeptic and the cynic and the humanist and the academic. Has God said? And the really sad part of this is that it isn't just the people of the world who are questioning the Word of God, but it's people in the church. In our time, people are questioning the authorship of the Word of God. They're questioning the accuracy of the Word of God. They're questioning the acceptability of the Word of God. They're questioning the authority of the Word of God. And I just want to state clearly and plainly, in case you wonder what kind of church you walked into today, all right, let me just kind of be real upfront with you to tell you that anybody who puts a question mark after the Word of God is an emissary of the devil, I don't care how learned and educated he or she may be. I don't care if he's a professor in a college or seminary. I don't care if she has a title in front of her name. Anyone who puts a question mark after the word of God is following the pattern of the tempter and doing the work of the devil. Has God said not to eat from any tree of the garden? No. God said, eat of all the trees except one. That's a big difference. But the question is introduced, and it creates doubt about what God really did say and whether or not he has your best interest at heart. Now, I want to tell you, if you stay out of the dialogue with the devil, you don't get the doubt from the devil. But once you enter into dialogue and then doubt is raised, that leads to denial, When Eve responds to the questioning of the serpent, she reveals her confusion. She says in verses 2 and 3, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, watch this, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. Wait a minute, wait a minute. God never said anything about touching the tree. But the seed of doubt has been planted, and that opens the door for the denial, the frontal attack. Verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. God, God didn't really mean that. 
God's not telling you the truth. God's holding out on you. See, God doesn't want you to be like him. He's trying to keep you under his thumb. The devil's gospel is that you can sin with impunity. There are no consequences. But I came to this pulpit today to sound a warning to those who will have ears to hear. I came to warn you with Proverbs 14 and 12. There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. I came to warn you with Ezekiel 18 and 14. The soul that sins shall surely die. I came to warn you with Romans 6, 23, that the wages of sin is death. See, Satan promises the best, but pays with the worst. He promises honor, but pays with disgrace. He promises pleasure and pays with pain. He promises profit and pays with loss. He promises life and pays with death. When God said, don't eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he wasn't talking about a sense of morality, just, just, just having knowledge and knowing the difference between good and evil. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the ability to discern and be discriminating about what is good and what is evil. See, I want to tell you, there are two ways you can know good and evil. You can know good and evil through experimentation, or you can know good and evil by revelation. Works like this. Have you ever come upon a sign that says, wet paint, don't touch? <laughs> There's something built into the human system that refuses to believe the sign and wants the experimentation. So you touch it and you have the results on your fingertips and the wall is marred because you can't just simply believe the sign. The process starts with dialogue, the dialogue moves to doubt, doubt turns into denial, then denial becomes delusion. Verse 5, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now watch this. He knows you will be like God. The temptation wasn't a temptation to fall down. It was a temptation to fall up. The temptation wasn't to be a devil but to be a God. Eve, think about it. Think about it. God's really, really withholding something from you. Eve, you can become your own God and you can choose for yourself what is good and what is evil. And yet, you know, it may be wrong for some people, but it just may not be wrong for you. So, so go ahead and try it. Eve, look, look, if you take the word of God, then God is forever God and you're ever listening to him. But if you experience it for yourself, ah, then you can be like God and you'll be the one that says what's good or what's evil and, and you can make up your own mind. Eve, look, look, I'm trying to help you become the first liberated woman. If you try it and like it, then you can enjoy it. If you don't like it, then you don't have to eat anymore. And how are you ever going to know if it's right for you if you don't try it? Does that sound familiar? Somebody has said that experience is the best teacher. I'm here to tell you that when it comes to sin, experience is the worst teacher. Those who are deepest into sin are those who know the least about sin because there's something about sin that blinds and distorts and short circuits the mind and the reason. And you think everything's good, but you don't know that you're 
hurtling toward destruction. The delusion is that she can be a God unto herself. The delusion is that she can live her life independently of the Almighty. The delusion is that she can make her own choices about what's right and what's wrong for her. It's the same temptation that goes on in the hearts and minds of people every time I stand in this pulpit and preach. It's the temptation to live by what you prefer rather than by obedience to God's Word. It's the temptation to live by how you feel rather than by what God has said. It's the temptation to justify your behavior according to the dictates of your own reason rather than by the revelation of God's eternal word. It's a temptation of make your, to make yourself the measure of what's best for you rather than trusting the wisdom and the compassion and, uh, of the lover of your soul. So dialogue turns into doubt, which turns into denial, which turns into delusion, and this leads then to desire. Verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. I want to tell you, this is how temptation works. See, the enemy has no raw materials, so the only thing he can do is twist what God has created. He finds a normal natural, God-given instinct and desire. He takes a God-given ambition, a God-given inclination, a God-given drive, and he perverts it. Like the, the desire for food is normal. Gluttony is a perversion. The desire for sex is normal. Adultery and fornication and so homosexuality is perversion. The God-given desire is the tree of life. The perversion is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which leads to death. Now, now the truth is that everyone isn't tempted by the same thing, and everyone isn't tempted to the same degree. But every day, you have a choice to make. It's the choice between life and death. Every day you decide which fruit you're going to eat, the blessed fruit or the forbidden fruit. Every day you're choosing to live by revelation or by experimentation. When God's Word speaks and the Holy Spirit convicts, it's a warning that the behavior is forbidden fruit. So don't get trapped by thinking you have to experience it before you know it's wrong. By then, it may be too late. Learn by revelation. Pay attention to the posted signs. Don't cross the boundary lines. Y'all doing okay? Everybody still? All right. Dialogue leads to doubt, which leads to denial, which leads to delusion, which leads to desire. Desire then turns to decision. Verse 6, she took from its fruit and ate. Understand, this choice, this decision was hers and hers alone. Nobody forced her to do it. Uh, later on, she tried to blame it on the serpent, but, but she did it all by herself. And one thing is certain, God will not allow your will to be coerced. When God made you, he made you in his image, and he gave you a will. If the devil could, he would make everybody conform to his schemes, but he can't. God will not coerce you, and he will not allow the devil to coerce you. 
God gave you a will, and it was Eve's choice, and she ate. It was her decision. But the moment she decided, her choice became a chain that bound her. Now, you've heard me say this before, but I want to repeat it because you'll hear it probably a lot because it's something we need to understand. You can choose whatever path you wish, but you cannot choose the consequences of that choice. You can decide to go any direction you want, but once you make the choice, every choice has a consequence, and you cannot change the consequence of that choice. See, Jesus said in John 8, 34, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Oh, you may think you're free. You may think you're liberated. But if you're ignoring God, if you're following your plan instead of His will, if you're violating His commands, if you're choosing the tree of knowledge of good and evil over the tree of life, you're not truly free. You're bound by sin. Well, this decision then leads to death. Now, I know at first glance, it doesn't appear that God's word was true. When when Eve took a bite of that forbidden fruit, she didn't suddenly gasp, start foaming at the mouth, and fall over dead. I mean, you read it. The Bible describes how she had a family and children, and she continued for many years. So it seems like God was wrong. But death in the Bible isn't primarily the separation of the soul from the body. Instead, it's the separation of the spirit from God. The truth is, she did die. She died immediately in the spirit, progressively in the soul, and ultimately in her body. The literal translation of the Hebrew that describes God's pronouncement of penalty for eating the forbidden fruit is, dying, you shall die. The moment she ate, she died and was then in the process of dying. She died spiritually. She was cut off from God, and from that moment, fellowship with God was gone. See, what you need to know today is that salvation isn't just getting your sins forgiven and going to heaven when you die. Salvation isn't getting man out of earth into heaven. Rather, it's getting God out of heaven into man. So when the woman sinned, she died. She became minus God. God moved out of her. And the overwhelming loss wasn't paradise. It was God. You know, I've read this Bible all the way from index to maps. I don't even know how many times. And never once in this Bible, in all the reading that I've done, have I ever found any talk of regaining the comforts of Eden. Instead, the great longing that is revealed in the Scripture is to regain access to God's presence. This is the cry of Psalm 84, verses 1 and 2. How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. This is the cry of verse 10 of that chapter. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. This was David's prayer in Psalm 27 and 4. One thing I have asked from the Lord, that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to be Hold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. 
I'm going to tell you, the greatest gift you could obtain from God is not paradise, but his divine presence. The writer talks about Jesus in the Gospel of John chapter 1 and says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So watch this. When the Lord left Eve, the light went out. When the light went out, the life went out. Her delusion became a desire which led to a decision which became her death. But there's one more thing there. Death turns to dissemination. In the last part of verse 6, the Bible says, she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Now let me tell you, there is an unholy contagion to sin. And not only has Eve done wrong, but now she's dragging Adam with her. Listen, listen, no one lives in a vacuum. This isn't just your life that's being affected by the choices you make. It's the life of your spouse. It's the life of your parents, your children, your friends, your co-workers. The choices you make are either helping someone you love to an eternal paradise or to an eternal punishment. When Adam and Eve yielded to the temptation of the serpent, the Bible says in verse 7, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Now watch, before eating the forbidden fruit, their hearts were pure. Their nakedness was innocent and in no way sinful. But once they ate of the fruit, everything changed. Their hearts were now tainted with sinful thoughts they'd never have considered before. Sin was introduced to humanity for the very first time. Sin separated them from God. Until that moment, they didn't even know what sin was. They had no understanding of condemnation and guilt, but now they felt the terrible consequences of sin and death. Joy was replaced with sadness and guilt. Peace was replaced with fear and condemnation. Contentment was replaced with anxiety. It says they were afraid. Their their eyes were open to the fact that their disobedience violated trust and created a barrier between them and their maker. They had dared to believe the lie of the serpent that they could be God instead of finding and embracing the identity God had given them. In their desire to be like God, they had lost the divine image. Innocence was lost. Guilt was contracted. And confusion and shame were the result. I want to tell you, far more shameful than their physical nakedness was the fact that their sin was now exposed. Think about this. Only a short time before, Adam was so wise that he could name all the creatures brought before him according to their respective natures and qualities. But now that sin has come, he doesn't know the first principle concerning the divine nature, that it knows all things and that it is omnipresent. Therefore, he tries to hide himself among the trees from the all-seeing God. He thinks he can sow fig leaves. Fig leaves? Are you kidding me? Itchy, scratchy fig leaves? He thinks he can sew fig leaves together to cover their guilt and shame and that they can hide from God among the trees of the garden. So when God came walking 
in the garden. He calls out and asks Adam where he is. And Adam replies in verse 10, watch this. I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. See, up until that moment, they thought their fig leaves were doing the job. But when Adam found himself in God's presence, he realized that his man-made coverings weren't enough. You know, I was thinking about this this week. People have been trying to hide guilt and shame and condemnation behind fig leaves for thousands of years. Think about it. People try to hide behind the fig leaves of reformation. You know, I'll do better. You, you might call it salvation by subtraction. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll stop going to those places and I'll stop saying those things and I'll stop participating in those events. You know, that, that, hide behind that. They try to hide behind the fig leaves of works and service. I'll work harder. I'll give more. They try to hide behind the fig leaves of being a good, a good person, c- comparing themselves with somebody else. You know, my fig leaves cover more of my nakedness than your fig leaves cover of your nakedness. They try to hide behind the fig leaves of their parents' religion. They try to hide behind the fig leaves of hanging out with the right people and religious activity. They try to hide behind the fig leaves of blaming somebody else for their problems. Those aprons of leaves were the works of man's hand, and a man-made covering for sin is always insufficient. Even with the... I'm sure they were fine fig leaves. They were the best fig leaves they could, they could have. I mean, they were in Eden paradise. But even with the finest fig leaves, the man and woman were still naked and afraid. Now, if the story ended there, it would be a tragic tale indeed. But then comes verse 21. And by the way, that's my introduction. (laughs) Well, I had to tell you all of that to tell you this. Verse 21, and it is here in verse 21 that we see a demonstration of divine mercy. And this is what I I want you to get today. Verse 21 says, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Now, when you read that, most people just read right over that and just like, okay, that's what God did, and, you know, here we go. And they get to the part about God kicking them out of paradise and, you know, all this. But I want to tell you, that one verse that I just quoted to you tells me three profound truths about the mercy of God. First of all, I want you to see that His mercy is a sovereign act. God would have been justified had He simply wiped them from the face of the earth and started all over again. I brought you up out of dust, you messed up, I'll just put you back in the dust and I'll start over again. But God's desire isn't destruction. His desire is redemption, his desire is reconciliation. And I want to tell you, the need isn't for covering, the need is for cleansing. Nothing you can ever devise can solve the problem of sin. The solution can only come from outside yourself. And that's exactly what God did. God came looking for Adam, and I want you to know that God is looking for you today. He's calling for you to come out of hiding. Come out of hiding. The great God of the universe isn't looking for retribution. He's offering reconciliation. See, before the mercy of God, Adam and Eve had clothes. They just weren't very good clothes because they were man-made. 
And because of their insufficiency, God supplied clothing for them. God did it all. They did nothing. All they did was receive the clothes God gave to them and put them on. And this is the mercy of God. I want to tell you, he isn't willing for any to perish. He's reaching to you right now. He has a clothing exchange available to you. You give him your unrighteousness, he'll give you his righteousness. You give him your guilt, he gives you his forgiveness. You give him your condemnation, he gives you his acceptance. It's a sovereign act. Not only is his mercy a sovereign act, it's also a sacrificial act. You see, the verse says that the garment was made of skin, animal skin. And I want you to get this. I want you to understand, this wasn't just some random animal that happened to be strolling by. Uh-uh, no, no. This was an animal well known to this couple. Pastor, how would you say it? Why would you say it? Well, because God brought all the animals to Adam and had him name them. This was an animal Adam had named. This was his family pet. They, they, they see this, this animal all the time. They call him by name. But in order to get the skin, the animal has to die. This precious, innocent animal is giving his life And in that act is a graphic illustration of the truth that the penalty for sin is death. See, this is the first death on earth. Nothing else had ever died before this. This animal was literally the first sacrifice ever made in history. One person has rightly noted that God made the first and the last sacrifices for man's sin. In the garden, God sacrificed the first innocent animal to cover sins. Many generations later on Mount Calvary, God made the last sacrifice of his sinless son to cover the sin of the world. God's gift to Adam involved the death of an innocent animal. His gift to you involved the death of his son, a pure and spotless offering to cover the nakedness of your sin. That's what it means in Galatians 3 and 27. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Those animal skin garments would eventually wear out. They would become stained and torn. Even worse than that, those garments God made for Adam and Eve would never allow them back into his presence. No matter how long they wore them, they would never be allowed to re-enter the beautiful garden that had been their home. Uh, But when you put on Jesus, all of that changes. All of that changes. The slaying of this animal is a graphic reminder of Hebrews 9.22. All things are cleansed with blood and without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. An innocent animal gave his life for Adam and Eve. So also Jesus, the spotless lamb of God, gave his life for you. His blood was offered once and for all as the full payment for your redemption. Acts 20 and 28 says that it is purchasing blood. Ephesians 1 and 
and 7 says it is redeeming blood. Romans 5 and 9 says it is justifying blood. Colossians 1.20 says it is reconciling blood. Hebrews 12, or 13 and 12 says it is sanctifying blood. Hebrews 13 and 20 says that it is, there is infinite and eternal power in the blood because it is the blood of an everlasting covenant. 1 John 1 and 7 says it is cleansing blood. And Revelation 12 and 11 says it's overcoming blood. I tell you, Calvary is the greatest demonstration of mercy this world has ever known. Praise be to God. The mercy of God is revealed as a sovereign act. It is a sacrificial act. Then finally, I want you to see that the mercy of God is a sufficient act. Had that first couple remained in the garden, they would have tried to eat of the tree of life. Had they eaten of that tree, they would have remained in a perpetual torment of guilt because no payment for sin had yet been made. We don't think a lot of times of God removing them from the garden. We don't think of that as an act of mercy, but it was. It was God's mercy. God, in His infinite mercy, removed them from the garden and denied them access to the tree of life. With the skin of the animal, God was preparing them for the more difficult environment into which they were being sent. This garment was durable, unlike the fig leaves they tried to make for themselves. It would provide warmth and protection. It would provide a remedy for their newly developed sense of shame. This garment would have to do until God sent his only son, Jesus, to another tree. And what happened on that tree looked like a complete failure to the world. For it was there on Calvary's tree that Jesus hung, bled, and died. But in that act, Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God, purchased redemption for lost humanity. Because of his death, now the mercy of God is extended to whosoever will call upon his name. His payment for sin on Calvary's cross is sufficient for every sin that has ever been or will ever be committed by anyone, anywhere. His payment is sufficient for your sin. And today, his mercy is extended to you so that you don't have to receive the penalty for your sin. Jesus paid for your sin, so you don't have to pay for it. All you have to do is receive his gift that is extended to you as an expression of his mercy. This is what the writer of the hymn was singing about when he wrote, Years I spent in vanity and pride, caring not my Lord was crucified, knowing not it was for me he died at Calvary. He went on and said, By God's word, at last my sin I learned. Then I trembled at the law I'd spurned till my guilty soul imploring turned to Calvary. He finished those verses up and said, Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. And he tied it all together with the refrain, 
Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. This same mercy and grace is offered to you today. Won't you receive it? His mercy is sovereign. You don't earn or deserve it. His mercy is sacrificial. You can't pay for it. It's already been paid for. And His mercy is sufficient. It's all you need. It's all you need. So receive His mercy. Receive His mercy and have all your sin forgiven. Receive His mercy. Have grace to stand. Receive His mercy. You'll make it by the mercy of God. Do it today. Bow with me, please. Eternal Lord, I thank you for your word that speaks to us today. It challenges us, but it also encourages us. It, it, it reminds us of our need, but it reminds us of your all-sufficiency that you've made available to us. It keeps us moving forward when we know the great price that's been paid for us. So Lord, today I pray if there's someone who has been listening to this message, who is not yet walking in right relationship with you, I pray that the Holy Spirit now will speak to their heart. I ask, oh Lord, that you'll give them the courage to make the choice to surrender their life to you. We don't need a sign. We don't need a feeling. We don't need to repeat a special prayer. We just simply need to make up our mind as a decision of our will. We're going to stop going our way and we're going to go the Jesus way. We're going to serve you. We will surrender to you. So, Lord, somebody's doing that right now in the quietness of their own heart. We don't need to call them out because all that's important is them and you making a divine connection. And that's what I'm asking for right now. All the, all the testimonies and all of the, all the identification, that can come later. But right now, in this moment, Lord, as that person says yes to you, seal in their heart by the power of the Holy Spirit that work of redemption. Make them part of your forever family. I pray this all in the precious name of the Lord Jesus who has given himself for us. Thank you for doing that. Amen. Amen. Stand with me, please.